Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Khaled Asuna, co-founder and CEO at Ample, which deploys robotic pods that enable modular battery swapping for electric vehicles. Ample's mission is to accelerate the transition to electric mobility by offering an energy delivery solution that is as fast, as convenient, and as cheap as gas, while being powered by 100% renewable energy. When entirely new platforms emerge, the initial applications of those platforms often look like what we already know, and they don't often take full advantage of the new platform's inherent differences from the historical way of doing things. When the internet first emerged, media looked like, well, digital newspapers. When mobile first emerged, apps looked like small versions of websites. And well, with EVs, the way they are sold and powered kind of mirrors how internal combustion vehicles are sold. You wouldn't buy a gas-powered car without a gas tank, after all. But Ample is rethinking all of that. The battery itself is a significant percentage of the cost of an EV, and recharging an EV takes significantly longer than fueling up your car with gas. Ample's take on all this is to rethink how energy is delivered to EVs and to rethink the unit economics around powering your car. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Khaled about Ample, and it helps you think about the possibilities of what things can look like when you rethink them from first principles. Khaled, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Khaled, I've been trying to read up on everything you're building at Ample, and I have to say, I, I feel like I'm interviewing someone who's building like a science fiction future here. So uh, if EVs are science fiction future that is already here, what you're building is the next wave and iteration of that. But before we dive in and give people all the spoiler alerts on, uh, on, on this EV future that you're, or this, this science, sci-fi future that you're building, talk a little bit about your background, because you've been building this company now for eight years or so, but, but you're new to, you were new to the space. You had a, from what I can see, you have a healthcare background. Yeah. So help me understand how you transitioned into working in EV and mobility battery space. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm new anymore. It's, it's been eight years and so now hopefully I'm an expert, but. There we go. You're right. When I first started, it, it was it was quite new. And so I'm, I mean, in a way, one part that's relevant is that I'm, I am an electrical engineer by training. Uh, hopefully, uh, there is a, a bit some credential to get me to focus on electric vehicles. But worked across multiple startups. Actually, both me and my co-founder, who was also a co-founder of a previous company, but we between us, we've had five successful companies or startups that we we started and. They've always been almost always in a, in a new space. I, I started my career after college kind of focusing more on communication and, and, and compliance and, and security until the acquisition. And then I went to education where I worked kind of in mostly in working with government to create infrastructure for education technology, mostly in Africa and South America. And then I moved into health and then I moved into energy infrastructure. And, and the theory is that 
while you have to expertise a lot, especially as you're solving problems, every time there's a, a fundamental shift in technology or the nature of the problem you're trying to solve, you do need fresh ideas. So the people who came up with our most successful startups we know about that we probably can totally agree on them being some of the most accomplished ones typically have not been from the industry that invented those. And that's because you come up with a fresh perspective and you can challenge the status quo. You come up with new ideas and, and you push them through. That's a good point. I mean, Elon Musk certainly didn't spend his whole career building cars or spaceships, and now he's building two of the most uh, successful companies in each of And he's one of many, right? Like across companies, if you think of the most prolific founders, they either came out of high school to do something, which they knew nothing about it, or they were first time kind of in, in, entrepreneurs in that space. So I want to come back to then how you landed on the idea of Ample. But before we do that, Let's set the table in terms of what is going on today in the state of the world as it relates to EV charging, and also what, if Ample didn't exist, what you imagine that future would look like over the next five to 10 years as EVs gain true mass adoption around the world. We're at a point right now where people, I think... I'm not debating anymore whether electric is, is necessary or is the right answer. I think we're just beyond that. I remember kind of when we started Ampel uh, seven years ago, we still meet with automaker executives. And it's like, if electric happens, like it's like they were, they were building electric cars, they're still not convinced. And I think now it's just, it's been almost set. Like we set in stone that we just need to do this. I think the momentum is there in terms of people believing we need to do something about it. I think the momentum is there in terms of government started to be pretty serious about first mandating it, but second, also putting a lot of incentives to make it happen. And I think that people who are making the things, the manufacturers themselves, who really have to fundamentally shift how uh, they approach what they're building and how they plan for it in, in the long term and how they plan their products are getting there. So in a way, kind of everything is coming together. I think what where we are, though, is that we are at the point where there is kind of a poverty of ideas, if I may, in a sense of we assume that we know exactly the answer on how we're going to go and scale it and make it happen, but we're still not realizing that it still doesn't work very well for a big percentage of people. Today, kind of, for example, if you are, can afford to pay a bit more for a car, you don't drive a large number of miles, you have a place to park your car and charge it overnight, electric makes perfect sense. But the challenge is anytime you go a little bit outside of that use case, it just suddenly becomes too taxing, too tough, too expensive, too inconvenient. That I feel like we're, we're going to be able to realize some percentage of adoption and growth, and then we're going to need different ideas and different ways to do things just so that we can get to the 30% or 50% and hopefully 100% being elected. From a charging network perspective, which when I lean into EV adoption, it seems like the big barriers, one currently is cost, which you presume will go down. Two is range anxiety. And three is charger network availability, which relates to range anxiety, frankly. But there are some differences because even if you have access to chargers today, it takes a lot longer to charge a car than it does to fill up with a tank of gas, I think. So maybe help us understand some of the nuances around electric charging, whether it's AC charging, DC fast charging, what are some of the pain points in each of those solutions that exist today from a, hey, I'm going to just, you know, like you said, the current model of charging kind of feels like filling up your car with gas. I'm going to pull up to a thing. I'm going to plug a thing into my car and then, you know, I'm going to wait till I have fuel, which is, 
or until I have it power, which is basically the same model as a gas station. It's just a different form of power. Help us understand the issues that you see in each of those technologies today. To a degree, I'm, I'm going to start with the last point you made, because I think it's actually a very, very important point, which is the way we deliver energy through a charger is fundamentally different than the way we deliver energy through a gas station. And the fundamental difference is that when you stop at a gas station, you're not trying to move energy in energy form. You're not trying to burn the gas and convert thermal heat and thermal energy and then trying to get it stored in a chemical bond somewhere else, etc. Instead, you're just grabbing something and moving the car. So effectively, you're not trying to do any energy transformation whatsoever while you're actually getting fuel. You're just moving physically and just drive off. And then while you're driving, you actually get to convert it into through kind of internal combustion and all these great processes, right? The fundamental difference about charging is that that's not true. You're not moving something physically. You're effectively trying to move energy through a wire, and then while you're actually plugged in, converted into a chemical bond inside the battery, three fundamental challenges with that. Like the, the first one is that energy is not information. It is expensive to move. You can increase the bit rate in a line, and that's why you can go to fiber, and then everything works. When you move energy faster, there's going to be more friction, it's going to be more heat generated, and it's going to be more expensive. And, ha- and then you start cooling the line, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So increasing the rate at which you deliver energy comes at a cost, and that's one of the fundamental problems. The second thing is also because we're trying to do it faster and faster, that's kind of where the battery degradation comes from. So in a way, kind of a, a big part of the challenge, and that's the big fight, is that Charging batteries faster reduces their life, and hence if the battery lives half as long, it's twice as expensive, and it's a big part of it. Is technology not evolving until we solve that problem? We're going to solve it in 5, 10, 15 years where you really can charge in a few minutes. I think we're still ways off, and I think it's going to be exotic and expensive for a while. But even these two fundamental problems are not the bigger problem, which is the way grids, we've been building grids for 100 years is not conducive to us delivering energy to cars, right? So in a way, the way we build grids is in a way where they sort of like a tree structure. There's a massive trunk that comes into a city, very high voltage. It gets split into neighborhoods and split into it gets it, until it gets to houses and factories and, and, and offices. And at the end, at the branches, there is very little power. So it's distributed. And the reason is because you don't need to move tons of energy very quickly. You kind of you need to use the energy slowly over time as you're sitting in an office or in a house or operating a factory. When we come to the transportation use cases, the exact opposite, which is the time I'm getting the energy from the grid is takes away from my utilization of the vehicle. So I can't kind of have to split my time between them, have to move the energy very quickly and then go actually use the energy. And the grids have not been structured that way. So that's really fundamental. When you think about charging, it's not really the battery technology. It's not can I charge fast. It's kind of how are our grid structure in a way that allows us to suddenly deliver energy to a very different kind of asset in a way that's efficient and in a way that's economically viable. So I'm, I'm hearing three big problems. One is with basic AC chargers, they just take a long time. It's going to take a couple hours to charge your car. That's, not, that's definitely not a fill up to the gas pump and plug in and, and then drive away type of use case. Two, with a fast charger, like a DC charger, there are two issues. One is that it degrades the battery life quickly or relatively quickly. And battery life is, to some extent, the the holy grail of EV resale value because you ultimately need the the car that you're reselling eventually to still have a viable charge for the next buyer. 
and two, that it, it gets hot and it generates incredible demand on a grid infrastructure that is not set up to be able to absorb that amount of demand today, which is, I think, when you often hear people say, hey, our grid is not set up to scale for the amount of EV adoption that the current automakers are forecasting, what are we going to do about it? Or some of those tensions that you often hear in the EV discussion. Am I capturing the problem set correctly or did I overly simplify? No, no, no. I mean, if, uh, you, you, you said much, much better than, than I did. And I, I think in a way, maybe one, one symptom to that challenge is that we've been talking about 350 kilowatt charging for a long time right now. And you go to any major American city or, or European city and they're almost non-existent. And that's because they're really extremely expensive, very hard, and the grids are just not there to support them. And I would even add one other dimension that I think is very, very important, which is, and maybe it's a somewhat tangential, but I think relevant, is that electrification doesn't necessarily mean greenification. That's like an, another layer to it, which is moving our transportation to electric makes it a lot easier for us to start using renewable energy, but doesn't necessarily guarantee it. If I am stopping at 7 p.m. and using a 200 kilowatt charger, most likely I'm not using the sun, right? Or I'm using it buffered somewhere that is maybe going to add to the cost and the expense and the complexity. And what geographies around the world today have managed charging networks the best? I'm, I'm going to presume it's somewhere like Norway that has very high EV adoption, but maybe unpack that. And also, what have they done well? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a very, very good question. There are outliers that have done a good job. I think, I mean, Northern Europe uh, or Scandinavian countries generally have done a, a pretty good job. I think they have uh, less density and better network. Uh, they have the resources just from a GV per capita in order to be able and distribution and uh, government and policy support in order to build infrastructure well. To a great degree, they benefit from the fact that a lot of people have places to park their car and charge them. So they're a lot more distributed than uh, Paris or London or in New York or San Francisco, right? So in a way that helps a lot because then you can use AC charging, you can dis- distribute your usage over time, and hence increases the cost. So they have those advantages. At the same time, also, they did invest very well. The challenge is I'm not sure the strategies they've used or what they've done effectively is applicable in many parts of the world, either where people are a lot more price-sensitive, developing countries or countries that don't have necessarily the resources, or places that are a lot more concentrated or have much older grids that require a lot of upgrades. So in a way, very often how fast you can move and what choices you make are more a function of your specific circumstance. And I don't know that we yet have kind of a solution that works across these boundaries, right? Super. Well, thanks. I mean, just a helpful level set on the state of charging networks. Let's do the same on the state of lithium ion batteries today and and EV batteries in general. I'm making an assumption. We don't really have a robust used EV car market yet, but I'm assuming that as that starts to develop, the some kind of measurements of battery health is going to start to become one of the most important factors in the resale value of an EV. Do you do you agree with that assumption? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that topic generally. No, no, very much so. I mean, and, and you can actually start seeing even the policy starting to protect consumers in terms of giving them the right to understand where their batteries are. I mean, Europe kind of I think, as often is the case, have maybe have been on the forefront of putting policy to give consumers the ability to understand how the usage impacts the residual value of their car and, and also giving them protections around getting a guaranteed amount of minimum kind of state of health that they remain based on what the manufacturers promise. But you're right in that 
to a great degree the one fundamental difference in electric cars economics has been the battery. When, when we first got the electric cars, the promise was this has 200 moving parts as opposed to 2,000 moving parts and hence it's going to be less maintenance and live forever, et cetera, et cetera, except for the battery. It's a chemical process that will deteriorate over time and that means the range will go down and hence the utility of the of the car will, will drop. And you see electric cars, even though they're getting better, and I think the supply chain crunch has helped kind of prop, prop up the numbers, but generally in when you're comparing apples to apples, they drop a lot faster than ICE cars. And that prompts maybe two, two things that we need to think a, a lot more about. One of them is how do we not get consumers to have to choose between losing value in their car and losing time. And that's often the compromise a lot of people would have to do. And that's unfair for most of humanity. Like for maybe rich people who don't care, it's fine. I'll supercharge, et cetera. But for most people, that's a very tough compromise because both are worth something to them. And the second is also how do you make it easier for us to continue making use of the rest of the asset over a longer period of time? Right now, if you want to change your battery, often makes no economic sense. You're paying anywhere between ten and $25,000, and hence it's a lot cheaper for you to buy a new car. And what that means is that you, we're going to cycle these cars a lot faster, which we shouldn't. The theory is that we keep them longer. I think we need to develop approaches and ideas for how do we extend the lifetime of the rest of the assets so that it becomes more environmentally friendly, but also more economically viable. And we've seen some models where, uh, some business models, where EV manufacturers are shipping battery-less Cars, right? Like I believe Neo in China offers a batteryless version that that does have a swappable battery. Um, we've had on the pod previously a company called Basico that is in Kenya making electric buses that don't have uh, that don't ship with batteries and that have a battery swapping solution. So I think there are some precedents, right, for cars coming to market that actually the battery is not included in the purchase price of the of the vehicle. Another way also in which people have done that is uh, battery leasing schemes. So in Europe, they're a lot more popular than they are in the U.S. or in Zoe when it was first launched. It has a battery leasing scheme. You buy the car and lease the battery or lease either of them independently, knowing that they're going to have different lifetimes and hence you can actually extend one over the other. So you're absolutely right. I mean, more and more thinking, I think that challenge has so far been that the way vehicles have been built is kind of more of an integral part. So NIO has invested in a swapping system, and hence that enabled them to unlock the battery effectively, right? And make, it, make that possible. I think with other OEMs, that so far has not been the case just because it's built to be kind of delivered as one piece so far, which hopefully we're changing. We'll talk about that, but that's been the, the way it's been done so far. We'll get there for sure. I promise. <laughs> You know, I, I'd, I'd love to understand in the current setup that is the way the industry is working, at least in the U.S. and in most of Europe so far, which is you buy a car that's everything's in it, including the battery and the, and the, the powertrain. You're charging your car every so often. Again, there are obviously issues with this. It's, it's harder for non-single family homeowners to have an EV because you don't necessarily have ready access to charging. Again, it, it, the, the grids are adjusting to completely different power demand use cases than maybe they have uh, had to deal with otherwise. Um, but do you have a sense of how an average is maybe, I don't know if they help or not, but what are the average patterns that people do with their EVs? Are people on average 
charging every day? Are they on average charging when they get home from work at night and plugging their car in? Are they on average charging during the day at, at a place of work? Like, what does the typical industry charging profile look like? I'm going to give you a couple of data points, but also I'm going to give you a, a cautionary tale. The couple of data points. First, on average, people who own EVs drive a lot less miles per year than people who don't. This could be seen as one of two things, either a result of the fact that EV is often a second car. People don't use it as a first car as, as much. And also that uh, it is used often for shorter routes or people who maybe drive shorter routes are the one who can afford to own EV or drive less than number of miles a day. So in a way, that's kind of very common. And, and that's been a challenge in terms of how do you get EVs to be as usable as a typical car for people who drive X number of miles. The other thing I, I would be just caution is to the number of EVs we have on the, on the road is a tiny, tiny percentage of cars. I mean, we're talking about at best 3% in certain places. I mean, if you include kind of Norway plus, right? But if you look at the majority of, of the human population, it's 1% to 3%. In some places, way less than 1% if you're kind of in a, in a more developing geography. What we end up, the, the trap we fall into is that we start trying to assess what is the typical driving behavior of someone who owns an electric car, but we don't realize that they're self-selecting. So it's possible, let me not say it's 100% the case, that the people who own an electric, electric car are people who drive in a certain pattern that allows them to own an electric car. And hence, we start drawing conclusions about how 97% of the population is going to behave based on the 3% that's self-selected based on their behavior. That's kind of part of the challenge. So in a way, the only person who can own an electric car today generally are people who have a place to park it, charge it overnight, and they drive less than 50 miles a day, typically 30 or lower. Good reminder to not, you know, when we're building new markets, to not use the early adopter data as a leading indicator of where the future is going to be as the market grows and expands and, and starts to steal share from legacy markets, which often have very, very, very different user behaviors than the early adopter markets. I think that's enough table setting. I appreciate you humoring me with that, but it's really helpful, at least for me and hopefully for people listening, just to wrap our minds around the state of the world today. So. Let's jump right on in. What is Ample? You're building something totally different than the way the world exists today from an EV perspective. Walk us through it. Let me just give you a very quick brief idea. I'm sure we'll, we'll dig more into it, but Ample is a battery swapping company. Effectively, we build robots that swap your battery. If you own an electric car, you drive into one of our swapping stations, robots will come remove the battery with a fully charged one, one and, and you drive uh, with 100% charge in a few minutes or less. That's in a just nutshell what it is. There are a few things we've done. I mean, battery swapping itself is not an idea, so there are a few things we've done that are fundamentally different. Other than the fact that it's swapping, almost everything about what we do is, is different than what people have done traditionally. But at the core of our innovation is the idea of modular battery swapping, where instead of just taking a whole battery out, our batteries consist of modules, and you just kind of, remove these modules and replace them. When you go to the next car, there is the same modules, but in a different formation and a different number of them. And that's what allows you to kind of adapt to different car models and still be able to swap every car, regardless of its size or shape and how much battery it is. So that's kind of the idea that we're battery swapping, but fundamentally a modular battery swapping approach. But to make sure I understand this, you're not talking about, oh, every five years you need to swap your battery because you're starting to have a range issue. You're talking about a thing that to me, it looks like an automated car wash that you pull into. And instead of 
plugging into an EV charger, you pull into this thing, little robots go under your car, unscrew your battery, pull it out, put a new one in, and you drive off like three minutes later. So you're you're no longer charging your EV through a charger network. You're literally swapping a battery out every time you need new charge. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Right. And we and we think of it ourselves actually as a gas station for electric cars. So in a way, it is in the same way that today, once you run out of gas, you just stop somewhere and get gas and then go back on the road. It would be every time you run out of charge, you just stop at our station. Our robots crowd the batteries, not literally, but remove the batteries, put new ones in, and you drive with a, with a full charge. And our idea is that those are abundant, available, they're everywhere. And I will speak a little bit about, in a sec, hopefully about why we're able to accomplish that. But that idea is they're abundant, you stop anywhere, get 100% charge and receive. Great. So, I mean, I have a, a, a billion questions for you. You know, the first one I have is, what does it do to your vehicle's warranty? Do you have to have a partnership in place with the OEMs that, you know, this is now an ample supported car platform? Yeah. You do. Okay. Listen, we, we don't touch a vehicle unless we're actively working with an OEM. So this is definitely us collaborating with them. We don't think of OEMs as our customer. We're not selling them batteries. We're really focusing on the end user, uh, be it fleet initially, which is where our focus is, and, and then eventually consumers. But the idea is that we collaborate with the OEM so that we'd install our system in their vehicles. Our quote of fame is that we require zero modification of the vehicle so that they're compatible with our system. So it becomes an option, either a fixed battery or swappable battery option. And then you buy the car ready to work with Ampel. And that kind of takes care of the warranty. I mean, from a supplier perspective, we just act like any other supplier. I mean, if today you buy a an electric car, most likely you're buying a battery in it that's made by someone else other than the automaker you buy it from. And and the warranty works that way. If there's something wrong with the battery, that supplier is responsible for um, uh, fixing it. Now, one important concept, very important to, to highlight is, and I think we turned that into an advantage in the sense that today when you buy an electric car, like we talked earlier, you have this expensive part in it and you're super concerned about it because if it goes bad, your residual value is very bad. Your car is a lot cheaper and you're not going to be able to make your money back when you sell it. And we think that's kind of upside down. It, it should be the other way around. The idea is a battery is a gas tank. You don't worry much about your gas tank when you're selling your car. So the idea is that you should worry about the rest of your car and someone else should worry about the battery and make sure you always have one that's new. And that's kind of the role we play. So we say instead of having the battery being an expensive part that you pay a lot of money for upfront and then you have to replace it goes bad, you don't pay for it. And instead, you pay for usage as you use it, and then you will always guarantee that you have a good battery, and that's how you get a lot more lifetime out of your vehicle. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. 
If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. So do you expect, and obviously, you know, each OEM's, each dealer is going to manage pricing of their vehicle however they want to manage it, but you would expect then that there will be a future EV market where a consumer can buy a full-priced EV with the battery installed or can buy an EV, presumably at a pretty significant discount that comes with an ample battery swapping uh, pl- placement and tie-in. 30 40% cheaper. So we can already, you can already acquire the vehicle at a cheaper than a gas car. And not just that, but as we said, you will be able, we'll, we'll guarantee the battery continues being good over time. And what that means is that you'll get a lot more use out of it. If you want to own the car for 12 years, you can do that. If you want to sell it after five, you still get a lot of value from it because you don't have this part that went bad in the car and, and then the value of the car went down. And so if I am a homeowner who has solar on my own roof and basically has free perpetual electric access to electricity, maybe I buy a, an EV that has the battery already installed because I can fill it up essentially for free all the time. But if I don't, or even if I do, and, uh, you know, I want to own the chassis of the car for the next 20 years, and I may opt for the battery swapping model, where I'm essentially paying then every time I want to swap my battery out, you know, how does that compare to, say, the current cost of filling up a car with a tank of gas, as an example? It's a very good question. I mean, our commitment to all our customers today and future customers that we're going to be 20% cheaper than gas. Right, and that's without them having to install chargers and pay for them. Getting a gas station like experience, where within minutes you get a hundred percent charge, not having to pay a lot for a battery that goes bad because you kind of abuse it by charging it. So with all of these advantages, you're still per mile you're paying twenty percent cheaper than gas, which is not what you could say about kind of other approaches. Yeah, and I presume as well that with a battery swapping system, the batteries over time are going to get better and better. And so you're not stuck with a five-year-old technology in your car. You're continuing to drive on the latest and greatest battery technology as well. And actually, one of the things, so when we first started Ampel, people think that the first thing we did was to start playing with robots and figure out how to do swapping. We actually didn't. For the first two years of Ampel, our prime focus was, how do you build batteries that can work across vehicles? And in, in doing that, because different vehicles are designed to work with a kind of different chemistry, different voltage ranges to a great degree, actually more and more so over time rather than less. So how do you make one battery work across different vehicles? And in solving that problem, we end up kind of innovating on an abstraction layer between batteries and, and vehicles. And what that meant is that now you can plug the same battery into different vehicles, but also over time as battery changes, even if it's not compatible with vehicles, you can actually immediately make it compatible with the same existing vehicle. So you're absolutely right. Today, you buy an EV, you expect over two, three, four, five, eight years that the range is going to drop. In our case, it would probably grow because we're putting better batteries in the system and hence you're getting more range over time. Why do you need to have one battery that fits them all? You're only servicing my car if you already have a partnership with my OEM. When I pull into a ample swapping booth, why wouldn't you notice that I'm a Rivian or a, a GM or whatever and just give me the appropriate battery type for that car? I mean, let's think about gas, right? So if Ford and GM and Hyundai and Toyota require a different kind of gas, you're going to need a lot more gas stations than you have today because you need place to store all of that gas. So in a way, we wanted to say, even as you scale and deal with a wider and wider range of cars, 
you should not need to build infrastructure for each cache separately. That's just going to become untenable at scale. And again, one thing, Cody, that's important here is to think about not what's going to happen when you have a thousand cars added or ten thousand cars added. What's going to happen when we get to a billion cars on the road? And if you start scaling things, a lot of problems that seem smaller right now become a lot bigger over time, right? And what's the average time to swap a battery? You know, now getting into like your robots and how effective they are, what, 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 is that, what does that look like? We're right now kind of in the 10 minute range and we continue to innovate. So we know that we're going to get to five minutes fairly soon. I mean, that's five minutes below is when it's indistinguishable from a gas station experience. I mean, even at 10 minutes for 100% charge, without really any impact and 20% cheaper than gas is still the best offering you can have in EV today, but we, we're just not satisfied with it. We think we can, or we're pretty confident we can get to five, five minutes and lower. And do you need to have an order of magnitude? Right now, we already know one of the challenges to scaling EVs is access to the actual materials that are needed for those batteries, whether that's lithium or cobalt or whatever, there's, there's mining scarcities of those metals today. If all of a sudden now, presumably you have multiple batteries out there in the world for every EV that exists, does that mean we need an order of magnitude more access to battery materials? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really, really good question. So let me first answer, kind of maybe comment on how we determine how many batteries we need and how it's not kind of as many batteries as there are cars on the road. But then let me tell you really also in a scale system how we actually will need less cars than people will need today, right? So the first part is you, you come, we swap your battery, and then you leave. The moment you leave, we actually took the, took the battery we took from your car and we start charging it. And within two or three hours, ready to put in the next car. So in a way, we do that a few times a day and you need one battery out of the system to serve multiple cars. And you typically don't come once a day, you come twice a week or maybe once a week and hence, the ratio of cars is typically not as bad as people think. It's not like one-to-one. One. It's probably more like one-to-ten, one-to-twenty. So for every ten-to-twenty cars, you have one battery outside. So that's kind of what it is. And then if you uh, take the cost of the battery, now we're talking about five, ten percent of the cost of, of a battery in a, in a car, and it's a third, so you're really talking about two percent additional. It's really so negligible by the uh, improvement you get in the whole economic system, we just cover it easily. So in a way, we can be profitable doing that. Now, the interesting thing here is that what's happening in the EV industry is uh, what we call a kilowatt hour arms race, which is every time an OEM or an automaker kind of figures out how to make an electric car that's profitable and makes sense and they can make money out of it, the next automaker puts more kilowatt hours in the car. And now they're at a disadvantage and they have to stuff more kilowatt hours and more kilowatt hours. So you end up with kind of a car that goes 400 miles on a, on a charge when most people drive 30 miles a day. What ends up happening is that now you have a lot more range than you actually need and you have a heavy battery that's a third of the weight of the car where effectively it's using a third of its energy just moving itself around. So it's just like extremely efficient, doesn't make sense, it's expensive. And, and to... A great degree, the reason you want more and more range is because what you call range anxiety, which we actually call charging anxiety. So when you buy a gas car, you don't think twice about how big is the gas tank. You must never ask that question because, you know, every time I need energy, I stop somewhere for a few minutes. So in a way, the reason we're concerned about range of EVs is not because of how far a car goes, but because what happens when it's not charged. And then I get stuck somewhere waiting for an hour in a dark parking lot somewhere. And that's really kind of the experience. And no one wants that even once a year. If we solve that problem, then range anxiety goes away. But more importantly, if I come to you and I say, 
hey, you're going to get a cheaper car and you're going to pay X number of dollars a month if you get 400 mile range. But if you're driving 20, 30 miles, how about I give you 250 miles of range and charge you a lot less? But the one day you want to take the long trip, I'll put more battery in your car. Most likely you'll go for that. Why would you pay more when you don't need it? What we've done there is that we take all of the cars on the road and we can reduce the amount of battery across the system without reducing the utility. You still can take the long trip when you need it. You still get the energy very quickly and it's still cheaper. So in a way, we think that as in a scaled model, we require considerably less battery than everyone else, even though we have batteries outside the car. What I'm hearing you say is an assumption that when I pull up to an ample station or an ample pod or whatever you want to call it, I can somewhat choose what kind of battery I want to have in my car. Is it going to help me do my 15 mile commute every week or, hey, I'm about to I'm about to drive cross country. Give me the 400, 500 mile range battery in there so I can go as long as I want. And you can already do that. Yeah. And you already do that. And so I presume that also is a huge requirement for different fleets that you might work with as you think about a fleet owner who might be a taxi cab provider or might be. I know you have a partnership, I believe, with Uber, where you know presumably you're helping their drivers convert to driving EVs because now instead of having to worry about sitting and charging for a couple hours a day, they can drive into an ample station and, and swap out their battery and be on the road in a matter of, like you said, 10 minutes. But they're pr- presumably wanting you know as, as large a range as possible, given their use case. No, not necessarily. I mean, if it, listen, they're very price sensitive. They're, uh, these drivers are good economists. Uh, they, they understand kind of when you can make more money and how to drive to save yourself money and, and how to time yourself. It's just, they're just very conscious. I mean, they're typically they're eight to 10 hour drivers every day. So the professional drivers, the majority of the miles come from people who, who drive that way. And hence, you just give them the options and, and they choose, right? So if you say, hey, in the morning, stop somewhere for five minutes and the evening, stop somewhere for five minutes and you can save a couple of hundred dollars a week, that typically is meaningful enough for them without really a lot of cost. But, but you're right. I mean, there is certain use cases in which that's less relevant and others in which it is. If, if you are a last mile delivery, you're an Amazon or a FedEx and, and a UPS in the beginning of the day, you know exactly the route. You know how many miles you need. You can literally kind of send that data to Ample Pub and it will put the right number of batteries in the system. And hence, you can get them exactly the range they need plus 30% so they never get stranded and you're 100% perfect. So that's, I mean, or a consumer which might know kind of whether going a long trip or not as you, as you explained, etc. So in a way, I think it gives you optionality. It gives the fleet owners or the individual drivers the ability to decide for themselves, what do I need and how to optimize in a way that saves me cost and time. And that's what's lacking from what we're doing these today, where we're really taking optionality away from people. We're saying it's more expensive, it's lower range, it's, you're going to spend more time and it's fixed and there's nothing you can do about it. And we're just trying to give that power back so people can make up their own choices. I've got a, personally a consumer internet digital media background, and this just all reminds me of in the early days of the internet, the original news sources were the newspapers who came online and what they published online looked a lot like a newspaper, except that it was online. And, you know, we all know how much news has evolved as a native form to the internet came into being with social media and all of that. It's interesting with what you're saying, you know, today, again, even though the chemistry is fundamentally different of how you pull up and fill your car at a gas station. Today, EV charging feels a lot like how you sell a car with gas stations and all of that. And you're proposing a much more potentially EV native model to this 
to the entire solution of how do you power your vehicle going forward. I, I mean, that's, that's right on. I, I, I just kind of comment on that because it's really interesting, which is, you're right, the moment we kind of make a transition to new technology, even though it looks very different, it often mimics how, the way we're used to doing things. And it takes a little bit of time and thinking and developing of ideas and technology until we get to a point where really can make use of the me- new medium. You're absolutely right. I and mean, I think the, the advent of the internet is, is exactly, almost everything looks the same as it was before, it just happened online. And now it's fundamentally changing how we do a lot of things. Talk to me about how you charge the battery. So you've got these cars that are pulling up into your pods, yep. your robots are removing all these batteries, putting new ones in, you're stockpiling these depleted batteries. What do you do? How, are they charged there on the spot? Do you, do you have access to power at the pod station? Yep. Are the robots also charging them right there and, and preparing them for the next level of distribution? Are you taking them away somewhere? What, what does that Correct. look like? So they, they charge on premises, right? So in, in, or inside the same swapping station or the pod is connected to the grid. And hence, when the grid takes the batteries out, because they're smaller, right? Like they're actually almost this size. I don't know if you can see it, but effectively, you literally just plug them into a shelf and they start charging. We're monitoring them, we're making sure they're safe. If there's anything wrong with them, we shut them down, keep them aside, all that goodness. But we're, we're charging them on site. Now, the advantage we have is that the amount of, and that's kind of where some of the grid advantages started to appear, is that we, because we're separating, recharging the batteries from refueling the car, we can take our time. Like we don't want to put all the energy in your car in half an hour to an hour. We can take three hours charging this battery. Hence, the amount of power we need is considerably lower. So that opens up a lot more sites than you can than you have access to in a DC fast charger situation, which is so expensive to construct. Hence, you need six of them. Before you know it, you need one to two megawatts connection. In our case, our suite was 100 kilowatts, which you look at any building with two parking spots next to it, and you have access to that power. So it opens up a lot of uh, site in which we, when we put our station, we can very easily connect to the grid. But we are always connected to the grid. Now, now we're thinking about, okay, what do you do between LA and San Francisco, for example, and there's tons of sunlight and lots of space, and you put a big solar panel next to it, it becomes self-sufficient. So interesting place where we could do something like that, but within the cities where we really think is the toughest problem to solve, we kind of make it a lot easier to solve because our power requirements is considerably lower, but we're always connected. The other thing that gives us advantage is now we can, because we're choo- choosing when we charge the batteries, we can optimize for renewable energy usage. So we can say, listen, we'll charge them at between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. when the sun is most available and still be able to deliver 100% charge in five minutes at 7, 8 p.m. when you, when you come, come over. And from a distribution perspective from the pods, are you basically competing with the charge operators, charge network operators and the EVSC companies? Or what is that? What does that look like? You're, I presume you're talking to municipal governments, you're talking to retailers, you're talking to corporate landowners and you know parking, parking garages, I presume a little bit all of the above. All of the above. I, I mean, you're talking about kind of from a space perspective and access to locations to put them. Yeah, where, where, are, the pod, where are the pods going to live? Correct, correct. I, I think generally, yes, we're competing for space, I mean, especially in cities. Because our power requirements are different, they're lower, our space requirements are different. Typically, we have a lot more spaces available for us that we wouldn't compete with a fast charger trying to find a space because they're willing to pay a lot more money because their cost structure is a lot higher. We can make it a lot cheaper and hence reduce the cost to the end user. And as we said, we have a lot more sites available to us. So there's some competition, but not 
a lot of overlap. Let's go into your kind of initial go-to-market. I would imagine, you know, scaling us out in a direct-to-consumer model to start is challenging, even if it's has tons of benefits for consumers over time. Your fleet model is probably how you're finding initial customers, but maybe walk us through that. We don't think consumer is tough. We just don't think it's the right. It's a lot easier to do fleet. We don't think consumer is tough, but we think we can create a geographic concentration and we can create a very fast adoption and we can solve a tough problem for people who will move tens of thousands of vehicles to electric in a city if, uh, if the infrastructure supports them. It's just often either not available or doesn't work for them or for, for their use cases or economics, especially given their, their low margin often in these, in these businesses. It's knowing that's our focus, right? Much rather kind of sell 10 customers that want to convert 10,000 cars than convert 100,000 consumers to make a transition. The effect, though, is that the moment I have enough fleet in a geographic location that have allowed us to build infrastructure. So in the Bay Area, for example, where we, we got there in the sense of now we are everywhere, like we're Oakland, San Jose, and San Francisco, and everything in between, you can go anywhere and get 100% charge in a few minutes. Once there is enough infrastructure, this starts making sense for consumers. So that's going to be kind of a, the next step for us in these markets. So we start with fleet as a Trojan horse to create infrastructure in a way that makes economic sense. And then we transition to consumer, and we're starting to have this conversation with the automaker of what's the strategy, what's the concentration, how do we do it? Are the fleet owner relationships that you're engaging with open to helping you install? Well, I guess maybe back, let me back up. Are the fleet owners paying for the pods, or are you putting the pods in place? And are you are the fleet owners requiring that those pods are only used by their fleets, or are there fleets using them, but they are essentially public units? Yeah, no, we, uh, so one of the, our promises to fleet, a fleet we work with or, or in the future consumers is that they don't pay for infrastructure. So we cover the cost 100%. And what allows us to do that is that our cost structure is lower. Our sites are cheap. Our stations are not expensive because we're not moving a lot of heavy weight. So that means that they're really very inexpensive. It takes us a couple of weeks to build them and we don't dig in the ground. So it's very cheap and easy and fast to, to construct. That's a lot of based on a result of our modular battery swapping because there's simpler robots and uh, not simpler. Our engineers will not like me saying that, but they're, they're kind of cheaper to, to construct and build and a lot more reliable. So you know, our cost structure is low, so we pay for the infrastructure up front. Now, typically, we like public infrastructure. So when we work with a fleet, we say, hey, we'll take care of it. We'll make them available. Because we have so many sites that are public, that means you're not in siloed. You don't have your own station somewhere else, so you can make use of all of the stations and we can distribute the demand over time. So in a way, that's kind of the approach we take. That said, there is some fleets we're working with that have high enough demand in their own depot. It warrants us putting a station there just because it just makes sense from a usage standpoint. But we still give them access to the public stations as well because the driver should be able to go anywhere. And similar to a gas station, just be able to get access to 100% charge in a few minutes. So presumably then these these fleets have an app that shows them all the charge pods they have access to, the swap pods they have access to, and then the consumers would have an app that just would have, you know, maybe two fewer because it doesn't include the the fleet depots uh, proprietary pods or something like that. That's exactly right, yeah. But uh, today, I mean, in this deployment and the next one we're doing in Europe where, that we actually kicked off in Madrid the majority of the stations are public stations. So everyone who's in the system has access to all the stations generally. 
these pods are, they're not built on site. They're modular. They're dropped in place. Is that correct? To a degree, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of setup. Kind of, you, you bring the pieces and you connect them together and you do, but yes, there is no, it's not, a, it's not construction. It's no digging. They come in kits and you put them together and turn them on. So right now it takes about two weeks to get a station up and running. That's gone down from three weeks. We think that within the next six to nine months, we'll be able to build a station in three days. And what permitting steps are required? I mean, we will need, this is equipment. It's not a structure just because of the way it's built. So typically we are, they're certified, pass a certain fire test requirement and mechanical system requirement. So the permitting is like installing a piece of equipment. There is certain standards and codes you adhere to in certain places. For example, like California, there's a seismic requirement. You have to anchor them to the ground, etc. So you have to adhere to local requirements, but generally they're certified as a piece of equipment that you can safely install in other places. I mean, in a way, it's, it's kind of like a static storage system that have been validated. The standards are fairly sophisticated and developed, so we just follow these standards and then we can install them anywhere. I, I don't know the answer to this, but uh, it makes me wonder what the average time to get a gas station constructed and permitted is, but I have to imagine it's more than two <laughs> I think the challenge is that really the environmental impact is, is often where they spend a lot of their time, right? They're putting gas in the ground. So that's, that's often their challenge, yeah. And what about servicing? So, you know, speaking of gas stations, my, my father-in-law owned convenience stores throughout a small town in Kansas his whole life. And on at least one or two of those properties, he had a couple of, you know, robotic car washes. And I can tell you in the winter, those things were the bane of his existence. <laughs> they were breaking down or having issues quite frequently. And he was, you know, having to go out and service them all the time, you know, himself as a small business owner. What does servicing of the pods look like given the amount of complexity you have? You say the robots are simple, but they're more complex than than probably most things people are driving their car into on a, you know, on a very regular basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, these are kind of pretty sophisticated pieces of equipment. So in a way, there is a considerable amount of sensing in them. These motors know days, sometimes week in weeks in advance before they start failing. They start seeing higher torque and higher friction. Everything is monitored. To a good degree, we actually have kind of a preventive maintenance system. We always go out and thin and check and lubricate, etc. But at the same time, also, we have active monitoring of all the stations. In fact, we have a command control center here in which someone has access to every station that's deployed and can go and get reading from almost any system. So the system is smart enough that the moment there is anything that seems off that could fail in the future, it flags it, and then we send a service technician that checks it, validates it, maintains it or replaces it, and keeps going. Now, it's, a, it's, a, it's an operation. You're building systems out there. And one thing we're learning from our friends who are doing charging is that uh, it is important to keep things up. So from day one, we're really building a lot of sensing, a lot of cloud integration into the platform so that we can almost immediately, or as I said, even weeks in advance, can detect that there's something wrong and make sure it doesn't go, go bad. I mean, one of the worst experiences, sadly, and I understand kind of the challenge is that people go to two, three, four, five charging stations before they get to one that works. And that's not going to scale. At some point, people are not going to be able to run their lives that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, there's a great startup called Charger Help that uh, I know is doing a lot of work to help maintain chargers because oftentimes these chargers that are installed didn't come with service contracts. And, you know, I know people who have EVs who have that experience where the, the, the chargers themselves are not working. So it's glad I'm glad to hear you guys are you're building that in. It sounds like you own that model. So it's not 
stuck with the, the parking garage or the restaurants or whatever that has, has your pod in place, like you're going to own servicing of the model because you're directly profiting off of, I presume, uh, each battery that's swapped in any given, any given pod. Is that correct? Exactly. And, and from the beginning, we said we, we don't want to be equipment sellers. I mean, we, we're not building things we're going to sell. We actually want to be in the business of delivering energy. We want to make sure people get the energy they want, as fast as they want it, and as easily as they want it. So when you think of it that way, kind of you start, kind of because you're going to eat your own dog food. So you just kind of start thinking about, well, I'm going to be responsible for making sure these are up. And if they're not up, then I'm not going to be able to deliver my service. So you think very differently about your system when you're the one who's going to maintain it and make sure it's, it's running. So let, let's actually walk through the unit economics a little bit because we haven't done that. So let's say I'm a consumer. I pull into a pod. I'm going to swap my battery for, you said, you know, somewhere around 20 to 30% less than a tank of gas. So call it 50 to $100, depending on the type of battery that I want to yep. put into my car. That charge, you know, will last me, call it 250 to 300 miles probably, which is, you know, roughly about the size of a tank of gas, give or take. Of that, call it $50, then, you know, you you uh, are presumably taking a cut of that. The landowner that is supporting the pod is taking a cut of that. And I presume the OEM who has enabled the battery to support ample and the car to support an ample battery platform in the first place is taking a per transaction piece or did they did they get some kind of you know upfront payment from you for supporting the the, the platform in, in general yeah yeah i mean um no we we do kind of share our revenue with the oem that were the oems about 100 years ago got the, the short end of the stick um they were stuck with building the cars as a very very complex engineering uh uh, a challenge, but the gas companies made all the money. So we're trying to fix a little bit something that's maybe unfair. So we're saying, listen, if you, uh, we're not just going to help you sell more cars to, to fleets and consumers if they cannot own it. And that we think is actually the majority of the use case. We also want you to make more money from the car for the lifetime of the car. So in a way, we're trying to align our incentives and say, we've figured out a way to build infrastructure for EVs that's actually profitable. And hence, we can afford to share part of that revenue with you. So yes, we, we do share part of the revenue with, with the OEM, which actually also helps them pay for cost of factory integration and all of that. And, uh, and we do share some of it with, with landowners. We're also working with a lot of municipalities that want solutions that work. So we often also get land for free um, in a way that supports the communities and, and, and helps and also reduces our cost so we can offer a cheaper service. But yes, these are the components. There's the cost of the systems themselves, the cost of electricity, which really we hope we can lower significantly because we don't have the massive power requirement. So between all of these pieces, that's kind of the cost. Yeah. I, I want to dig into each of those a little bit. <laughs> sure. On the OEM side, super fascinating to think about, right? The Chevrons and, and Exxons and, and Shells of the world who became, you know, I mean, not that OEMs aren't multi-billion dollar companies, but they're not getting a piece of transactions today on, on gas refills. They are getting significant maintenance revenue for oil changes and dealing with ice engine maintenance, which is going to start to go away with EVs. And so this helps them supplement some of that as well as participate in the per refueling part of the economy that they were left out of. That's that's exactly right. I mean, we're, we're helping them in multiple different ways. I, I think you mentioned most of them, right? Like, which is they're losing part of the revenue, and now we're solving that problem by giving them another way to actually get supplemental revenue that makes the economic work for making cars. Building these batteries that are expensive and there's a lot of dependence on R&D, and we're saying there's a path in which we can allow you to keep making use of newer batteries as they develop without 
having to commit to any major battery supplier in any kind of way that often these are factors in year commitments, even if the technology evolves elsewhere. So we're just kind of giving them a way out. And the third thing is also making it easier for them to get the return investment on this major kind of investment that they've done, right? Like a lot of them have spent billions or tens of billions of dollars building cars that really they're not able to scale as significantly as they hope for when it comes to electric. So in a way, we're just unblocking them in different ways that make sense. And one thing we always say is, listen, there's not one model. I mean, if you look at gas companies or oil and energy companies, I mean, a lot of them right now are trying to reinvent themselves, rightly so, which they should, and it's a smart thing to do as energy companies, but some of the largest companies in the world just put gas in, in cars. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing, right? And in a way, kind of, you need to find ways to make that, that transition work for everybody. And then on the landowner front, I have been wondering for a long time, what is going to happen to all these gas stations around, you know, the world? They, you know, today, for the most part, gas is a relatively break-even product for them, and they make money by getting people to come inside and buy snacks and sodas and coffee and whatever. But if you're no longer stopping to fill up with gas, you're no longer buying any of that stuff in the store either. Do you see your ample solution as being a swap-out replacement for the existing I would call it real estate platform that is the gas station distribution around the world as a way for many of these stores to continue to to survive in the EV era? Very much so. I mean, if you look at our investors, you see Shell and Repsol and Enios and PTT, some of the largest kind of energy companies in the world that own a lot of gas stations. And to a great degree, I mean, all of them kind of very kind of publicly have invested in charging uh, because they want to be in that business. The fundamental challenge they have is Gas stations are built around the model you just described. A car comes in for a few minutes, so they're not using the real estate for long. So you can have a lot of kind of continuous stream of cars coming in. And one of the things that they do as they're there is that they step down and buy kind of a, a drink or a, or a snack or something else. And that's a big part of how you make the economics work. And then when you put chargers there, it's, it's not that anymore. Now that one spot, you have a car sitting in for an hour as opposed to 12 cars passing through it an hour, hence it reduces the revenue from everything. So we look like an almost kind of a drop and replacement and almost a sideways transition where it works the same way. You come here for a few minutes, it's enough time for you to buy a snack, but not too long that you're making the space have lower utilization. Now, one other thing we're doing is also opening up a lot more spaces. So because for various reasons in the big cities, the number of stations has been going down, gas stations, and, and, and hence locations for energy delivery has been dropping because for various reasons. It's, uh, and if you're in San Francisco, it's a lot more profitable to build that apartment building, but also kind of environmentally, people have become a lot more conscious and they don't want kind of a new gas station in their neighborhood. So one of the other ideas as well is that we're opening up more spaces to become potential ways to deliver energy because we're doing that clean way. So there's the balance of allowing them to kind of continue with the model in a way that transitions nicely to electric, but at the same time, opening up more, more locations to do the same. Well, and let's, I realize we, we probably need to start wrapping up this conversation, even though I could keep going. Uh, we've already even talked about some of the pilots you have in place, which maybe you want to touch on briefly, but you mentioned some of your, your um, you know, the, your bigger investors. Maybe walk uh, us through a minute just how you've capitalized the business to date. You closed, I believe, $160 million Series C earlier this year, I think. You've closed a separate investment from Blackstone earlier this year. Talk through how you're building the business, both from a venture capital perspective, from a debt financing perspective. If you're if you're financing different parts of the business with different types of capital, 
helping entrepreneurs who are listening to this understand how a company that's gotten to your scale is starting to think about the growth and scale components of your rollout? Uh, absolutely. So, we, I mean, we've raised three main rounds of funding. We've, uh, my co-founder, John I, is now our first rodeo. So, as, as I said, so in a way, we've kind of have multiple times had to think through, okay, how do you balance gr- growth and funding? Uh, and, and for entrepreneurs, what you don't want to do is raise way more money than you need because if you do it too early, you still haven't created enough value for you to really get good valuation for your business. But at the same time, you don't want your money to last you too little because then you'll have to go raise again before you've created enough value. So that balance is really the toughest part. And the golden rule, I guess, is you raise a little bit more or 50% maybe more than what you think you need and you work really hard to make it last you as, as much as possible. So we've, we've done a good job to a degree where every time we've raised a round of funding, it was at the an event of a, at the heels of a major event in, in Ampel, right? Uh, getting first major proof concepts done where we can prove the technology is, is meaningful, getting, getting our first uh, commercial kind of rollout started, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So in a way, kind of you, you want these steps functions and they also help punctuate you in terms of knowing that you have to get to the next level again, again, again. We're at a point right now where our, our investors kind of are a combination of savvy financial investors who could help us think about the financing from a debt financing perspective or other kind of instruments going forward, because um, which I'll describe in a sec, but then also good strategic investors who can validate that our thinking about the progression of the technology and the business and the market makes sense. At this stage, we feel there might be more funding to support the growth, but we don't want more capital funding to support the assets. We've gotten to a point where we've done two things. We've done a, we've built a swapping station that's profitable and hence it's financeable. And we've taken an electric car battery that today is embedded in a car and doesn't come out and just loses value over time. And we made it financeable because it took it out, made it into a pool of batteries that you'll get the most benefit out of. So we do strongly believe right now that then, and we already kind of have done some of these in that a lot of the financing of the asset will come as asset financing. And there's a lot of people in the world who are very interested in putting money into batteries and infrastructure. So we just enable them to do that. Super. Well, Khaled, what didn't I ask you? Feel free to, if there's anything you felt like was important that we didn't cover, whether it was some of what you're doing with Uber, your, how you're looking at Japan. I know there's been a number of things that you, you all have announced recently as a company. Make sure to share it before we, before we wrap up. Sure, sure. I mean, be a couple of thoughts. I mean, thank you for your question. I mean, I, I, always, people, I always kind of say that uh, a good interview is a function of how good the questions are. So I really appreciate kind of you uh, asking really, really good questions and just kind of digging in. So I, I would say maybe a couple of things. One of them is that I think as we look at electrification, it's going to be a function of two things. One of them, making it work for the end user, uh, whether that's a fleet or a consumer or a, the driver. It has to work for them. It, we can't ask them for too much. We can ask them, as I said, to pay more, wait more, and change the way they're living just so that we would save the planet. Everybody wants to, but at the end of the day, people have kids to drop to school and, and work to go to. So it just has to work for them. And until we can make that a lateral transition from gas, it's just not not going to work. We're not going to be able to achieve the scale we want. And the second important component, which I think we've spent a lot of time thinking about, is uh, the reason people don't think twice about buy, buying a gas car is because there's gas stations everywhere. So in order to make electric work, we have to deploy infrastructure at a much faster pace in a way that's economically viable. And, and that's one thing we love about what we're doing is that once we open up the market, we can set up a whole city in few weeks. Literally, you can go anywhere in a city, get 100% charge in a few minutes. And I think 
that's going to be the determining factor. Can you build infrastructure fast enough in a way that does not require you to completely rebuild the grid and make economics that don't work work and take months and months for construction? You have to be able to do it fast, efficiently, and put assets in the ground in weeks rather than, than months. So we feel we can do that, and I think that's one of the reasons where we're, we're, we're very bullish about kind of our ability to expand very quickly. Well, Khaled, I super appreciate you coming on today, sharing what you're doing, and um, good luck to you as you as you continue to build out the uh, Ample platform. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate uh, the interview. Thank you, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars, content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter, capital to fund companies that are working to address climate change, and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.